Hello! You're listening to Drawn to the Flame, a podcast for fans of Arkham Horror, the card game, the living card game. It deserves its full name today because this is episode 200. Cue music, dancing, lights, glitterball, explosions, fireworks. I'm your host, Frank, and today I'm joined by... It's me, Peter. Hello, Frank. Hi, Peter. How are you doing? I'm doing... Good, I'm doing much better than the last four years, that's for sure. <laughs> Good. Literally Good. the best Good. I've been oh. in the whole four years. Brilliant, I'm very glad to hear it. So Peter, what are we talking about today? Well, it, uh, as it's the 200th episode, uh, we're just going to kick back, I think. Um, let's answer some questions, open up the mailbag. Crack open those morning beers. That's right, yes, I've got a cup of morning brown. <laughs> very good, very good. Should we, should we dive straight in? Or, yeah, or let's do, do it. Let's do, do, do it. Do you want to yeah. re- recap the past two years first? Yeah, I thought I would go episode by episode and talk <laughs> through the last two years about my highs and lows of every single episode. And I won't be doing that. I jumped into and listened to episode 100 the other day. Actually, mm-hmm. it was a couple of weeks ago now. Um, have you had a? Have you re- re-listened to that? I have, yeah. yeah. It's interesting how far back we were at that point mm, mm. and how much has happened since. Uh, I mean, we've had cycles, whole cycles come out, whole mm. new investigators. I did enjoy you kind of... I thought the idea for Depths of Yoth came from someone else. but I but, think it, it had been bandied around online. Yeah. And, and then in that episode, you casually say, oh yeah, and why don't we do a thing at Arkham and Flames, which is see how low you can get in the Depths of Yoth. <laughs> and that's yeah. become we, like so that year that that so that must have been early 2019 right that mm-hmm. episode yeah yeah so that year we did arkham and flames mm-hmm. not long mm-hmm. after the podcast that that podcast yeah. went out because we were pitching for people to buy tickets <laughs> yeah during the podcast <laughs> and then we did the expo later in that year yeah like two months later uh where we did Depths of Yoth, and we did Multiplayer Guardians. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then we did Tabletop... No, we did... Yeah, Tabletop Gaming Live. Yeah. And we did Labyrinths. Did we do Labyrinths? Yeah. Yes, we did Labyrinths there. We did Labyrinths, and then we did Depths of Yoth the following day, didn't we? Oh, we did. That's right. Yes, I played it. Yeah. It's the first time I've done, like, the Depths of Yoth competition. Yeah, you were playing with Jaya as... Um... I, yeah, Jaya gave me a deck. I think it was J- Jaya yeah. and Simon, I think I was playing with. Yeah, that's nice. Um, who were, <laughs> if you know J- uh, Jaya and Simon, that's like... It's it's double wild card. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. It's unexpected courage, right? Two wilds on one card. That's right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Super cool. Uh, uh, Simon actually runs the uh, Stirring Up... Is it Stirring Up Trouble, it's called? I think it's called Stirring <laughs> yeah, Up Trouble. Yeah. They, they, they did the, the Arkham World Cup over over Christmas. Yeah, and and then we did Tabletop Scotland. We did as well. So, God, twenty nineteen was the year mm-hmm. of the Arkham event, and it was a real shame that through twenty twenty we we couldn't really do the same in person. We did do mm. uh, the Games Expo, uh, a virtual yeah. event, which which went well, went really well. Mm-hmm. But it's just, it was a real shame not to see people in person. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a real shame because the game has really exploded over the last year, and 
the number of new players who've come into the game in 2020 has been amazing and cheering. And it's so weird that 2019, we were out there doing events and it was really great to see people. And maybe that was laying the groundwork for people to say, you know what, this game is amazing and more people should buy it. And obviously, it's all pandemic. down to us, then. Is that what you're saying? No, I'm saying that that is a tiny contributing factor <laughs> that the work we put into making it nice might have had an impact that people are more inclined to say, yeah, you know what? Listen to this podcast. It's good too. It'd be lovely, lovely to think that, yeah. I hope so. I hope so. Beyond just wanting to be in a nice community, there is a practical benefit to that, which is that other people want to be in it. That, for me, has been actually, I think, one of the few really positive things just within our own lives and this small thing we do as a hobby which is seeing more people come into the game, more people become patrons of the cast, which has been amazing. Hi, patrons. Thank you for supporting the cast to episode 200. And more generally as well, there's been this like efflorescence of new... I think it's efflorescence. That means a flourishing, right? Effervescence? I don't know. Anyway, there's been loads more hashtag content creators out there as well. It seems people are wanting to try their hand at creating live plays or about talking about the game or streaming the game. And yeah, that seems really good as well and really healthy that people want to share their experiences. I think that's maybe something that's always been part of Arkham that we didn't necessarily give too much credit to, which is that this game creates stories and people therefore want to share those stories. It's not like Netrunner where you play, a, you know, some competitive matches will have a narrative to them that's worth sharing, but many don't. Whereas in Arkham, there almost always is a story point or an anecdote or something to share. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, to an extent. And just to build on that, I think what's what's interesting is that there's there's almost the reverse curve you see with the competitive LCGs. Mm-hmm. Early on in the game, there was only the Mythos Busters, and then and we started a podcast. And for, I think for quite a while, there was just us two in terms of the podcasts. There was, mm-hmm. I think, Man from Leng has been doing uh, videos for, for quite a long time as well. Yeah, yeah. And then I think the Miskatonic University Radio started... But but really, I think there was there wasn't that many people doing the the community content stuff early on. Mm-hmm. But it really seems in the past year there's been an explosion in the number of people you can find doing it. I, I tried to list because there was a, there was a thread on Reddit about about content creators, and mm-hmm. I tried to list some, and I kept on thinking of more. I mean, even within our own Patreon community, we've got things like we've got Dumb Luck, we've got Northern Lights over Arkham. Not that they're doing it because we did it, but but. No. People who um, who were on our Discord and uh, are patrons of our cast, even within that kind of subset of the Arkham community, we've got four or five um, yeah. community Arkham creators. Arkham Horror Badly as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Arkham Horror Badly. I, I don't want to. Don't start. If I start naming them, I always feel bad if I list. I have to list all of them or none of them. <laughs> That's the challenge at the moment as well. I mean, exactly, even with yeah. articles being written about the game. I now see on the Mythos Busters Discord there are various people who are doing either lists or exploring deck building or you know writing guides, things like that. That seems to have all just blossomed. The point I was trying to make was what I found in competitive card games is that the community almost tightens up over the life of the game because it's harder for new players to get in. Uh, not to say that they never do, um, and certainly one of the challenges FFG try to address is to give those new players a path to get in. Mm. But but the the fact that the I don't know whether it's the fact it's 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 got a broader appeal, so it's it's pulling in board gamers and, and solo gamers as well, or whether 
the fact that the cycles are effectively standalone. You can pick up a cycle by itself. I don't know whether either of those things contribute to people being able to get into the the game later on or or, 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 or more welcome when they arrive later. I'd even add to that as well that there's there's the allure now when you start playing the game that you've got a choice of five cycles to pick to start with. I mean, we'd still recommend Get Dunwich first, but it might be that you go into your local shop and there's the Path to Carcosa Deluxe sitting on the shelf, I mean, or your local online shop at this point, and you see some of the Mythos packs and you've enjoyed playing the core box. So you're like, well, I'll just get that then. So the, the weirdly, the it feels like there are maybe more entry points to this game because you're not being told, we'll buy everything because that's the only way you can compete. It's like, pick your entry point and any one deluxe can be a starting point for you. I mean, we are going to dig into the mailbag imminently and there is a question mm-hmm. sort of related oh, is to there? this. Which, okay, yeah, well, cool. yeah, um, <laughs> Arkham's superfan mm. has sent us four questions, I think. Wow. And podcaster, right? Great old ones gaming. Uh, yeah, yeah. I always... Uh, He's he's everyone's biggest fan. He's the game's biggest fan, I would say. I think everyone everyone who's remotely online plays the game will know who we're talking about. But we'll, we'll, we'll come <laughs> to his disputed champion. Yeah. <laughs> That's it, heavyweight champion of Arkham. We'll come to those in in a few minutes. But yeah, have you got anything else to add of, for the past past couple of years? Um, I mean, we've touched on the big salient points: the highs of Arkham in Flames, the lows of a pandemic. I think the other thing that I've really appreciated over the last year as we've played a bit more together and I think weirdly I think one of the strengths of this cast if I can be so bold as to make a reflection on our own podcast is that we don't play together all the time which means we we have our shared meta where we talk about the game but you also have your portion of the Edinburgh meta and I have my portion of the London meta and they both feed into our thoughts on the game and you know we have these uh, separate experiences that that feed into what we're doing but it has been really nice to just get some time playing together particularly when we've been exploring bless and curse and that's a lot to get one's head around to be able to do that together and i think you know that's a a side effect of all of the restrictions that we've had over the last nine months but also i mean i'm going to be always be grateful for whatever small boons there are in my life so that's been really cool to get a bit more experience together yeah, yeah, and it's it's been there's been some fantastic games of Arkham we've played. I think mm-hmm. not just because mm-hmm. we, we get on well, but but because of the the way Blessing Curse is developing, and we will get to an episode where we talk less about Blessing Curse in in, in <laughs> some depth. But to me, one of the best additions to the game in years. Yeah, yeah, and I think even to to go from thinking. Mm, the covenants feel fairly straightforward to them yeah. seeing them in play and going, okay, wow, well, there's actually some sophistication here or some wrinkles that are enjoyable. It's the weird thing about about being a podcast is like all of your mistakes are, are fossilized mm. <laughs> in amber, so someone yeah. can go and dig them up later and, and and see how wrong you were. This is why we we always hedge our bets on how bad cards are. We yeah, <laughs> someone can go back and dig out our take and, and say how wrong we were. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. So, should we dive into this mailbag? Let's do it, let's do it. Do you want to ask the first question? So, this is a question from Ben. Thank you, Ben, and hello. What are your thoughts on all of the scenario packs, epic multiplayer packs that are out? And I think by scenario packs, he means like side scenarios, <laughs> not not all scenarios. And which would you recommend or recommend the most? Curse of the Rougarou was awesome when it came out, but how does it do now that we have full five full cycles out? 
things? Good question, Ben. First of all, just have to distress that. Man, I mean, Curse of the Ruguru and the Carnival, they're sort of ingrained in our in our collective memories. For folks mm-hmm. who've been playing since the very start, uh, Curse of the Ruguru was one of the first things that, that came out, right? Mm, yeah. Um, it was the first Arkham Knights scenario. And from what I remember, there was a there was a delay in the first cycle, wasn't there? Mm-hmm. And to help fill the gap, they released Curse of the Ruguru early. Is that right? And Carnival, I think, didn't they? Because yeah. at Arkham Knights 2016, when the game came out, you could pick up your corset. But also Ruguru, I think, was out then. Yeah, yeah. So those people who first played it at Arkham Knights 2016 had a four-part campaign when they were expecting a three-part campaign because they had Ruguru. And then I seem to remember Carnival was like that December. Did we maybe get the Dunwich Deluxe and then get Carnival? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I remember I've got strong memories of playing Carnival with Zoe. Mm-hmm. But but it's uh, Ruguru in particular... I think we played it so much back towards the beginning. We, we, we learned its its mechanics quite well. And certainly I did anyway. And, mm-hmm. and it's been quite some time since since I revisited them. We actually played Carnival not too long ago together, right? Yes, we did. Disastrously, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, it did not go well at all. Yeah, yeah. And then we spent quite a lot of time scheming how to, how to beat it. I mean, I think that's one of the things I really enjoy about the side scenarios is that mm-hmm. you can make a project of... How do I beat this it. this scenario? I mean, you could do that with any campaign scenario as well, but my my preferred way to play the campaign is step by step and have a deck that can handle what all eight scenarios of a campaign throw at you. Yeah. Um, whereas with the side scenarios, you can say, look, here's, here's this project. I think summer 2019, I did that project with a different Ben. Hi, Ben. All about Guardians of the Abyss and working on, well, how do we actually bend these two scenarios to our will, um, which we were relatively successful at. So, yeah, I've enjoyed that. Let's, I mean, there's not there's not too many of them, so we can probably mm-hmm. list, list them all, right? So mm-hmm. we've got, yeah. we just mentioned the Carnival and, and Rougarou. Uh, then we've got, if we just do the the kind of single-player standard side stories, we've also got Murder at the Excelsior. Yeah. I guess, do we count um, Barkham in there as well? I suppose so, yeah. I haven't played Barkham yet. I don't know whether you have. No, I haven't yet either. It's sort of like an alt scenario, I suppose. Yeah. It's yeah. And we've got the Labyrinth of Lunacy. Mm-hmm. We've got the Blob that ate everything. Mm-hmm. We've got the two Guardians of the Abyss scenarios, mm-hmm. which are called, Frank? Endless Slumber and Knight's Usurper. Yeah. Can remember those names. Thanks for putting me on my <laughs> on my toes. That keeping me on my toes. Uh, we've got War of the Outer Gods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've lost count. I now. That's, I that's it. I think that's it. Yeah. Uh, so that's nine. I think I was counting there to nine. Okay. I I, I don't think any of them are bad. I, I would say for me the the multiplayer ones. So that's the Blob, Labyrinth of Lunacy, and well, I haven't played War of the Outer Gods yet. That's not long come out. Yeah. The first two certainly Labyrinth of Lunacy almost certainly better played in multiplayer mode yeah the two the guardians ones although they're they're sort there's a multiplayer aspect to them Mm. they were kind of multiplayer when they came out they are much more like single player scenarios but they are quite Mm. hard (laughs) yeah they can be Uh, it can be very difficult if you don't know if you don't know what you're doing you don't build your decks around it Mm. but the rest of them i think they're all good i don't think any of them stand out as, as, as not being worth it 
Yeah, no, I'd agree. I'd agree. I think the only point I'd make is the one you mentioned, which is that like, Labyrinth's not an epic multiplayer is fine, but it's nothing exciting yeah. compared to the epic multiplayer experience that adds so many layers of excitement and interaction and planning and things like that. Yeah. So, it, I mean, it does have lots of different paths through it and depending on which side you play and things like that it can be it can be really intriguing but once you've worked those out what it has some story cards that really add the replayability so yeah that that's somewhat you don't use the story cards i don't think in solo can't remember anyway you lose some of that yeah yeah i think um blob and war of the outer gods the really cool thing is that they've clearly learned from labyrinths they easier to run as epic multiplayer games (laughs) and they work better as scenarios in their own right and i think what i'd really actually want to do as a future episode is do side scenario reward cards and talk about those yeah Yeah. because you know there are these some cards that can be really impactful to decks i'm thinking of john and jesse burke from endless slumber some of the war of the outer gods scenario rewards are really cool and it would be really interesting to explore those and think, you know, where do they fit in? And then obviously there's that Curse of the Ruguru style where you go and play it as Calvin and get the Werewolf Curse because it sets your, your base stats to two twos and two fives, which yeah. for Calvin is amazing <laughs> because his normal base stats are zero, 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 zero. So yeah, there's all sorts of interesting little avenues that can be explored with them, I think. The only other thing I'd say is I sometimes find it hard to get a lot of XP from side scenarios. Yes. XP isn't the underlying sort of main purpose of them, which means if you play them in campaign, you have to either be really on your toes or you're essentially investing that XP in the scenario reward cards. Yeah, yeah. I, and I very rarely play them in, in campaigns. Yeah, I'm the same. I save them up for those times I want a one-off game. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In, in terms of the, the other ones... I would say I think Murder at the Excelsior oh, yeah. is is probably one of the best of those standalone ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a really good scenario. It's it's very funny. Yeah. <laughs> I've had a lot yeah. of fun playing it. It's maybe the most replayable as yeah. well. Because yeah, it, I'd it, agree with that. It, it changes a lot depending on how you've set it up. Um, so if you were just going to pick up one, you could, I could maybe recommend that one. But I don't think there's any duds, especially in those kind of core three standard, do do air quotes, mm-hmm. standard mm-hmm. ones. Yeah, I'd, I'd second that on Excelsior. I think it's very replayable. The other thing I really like about it is it seems a very balanced, I mean, all of the side scenarios are like this, where they test all of your stats, but it feels very balanced. The situations where you need agility, the situations where you need willpower, it kind of puts you through your paces as an investigator, which I think is quite good. I want that in a side scenario I don't want it to all just be just intellect or something like that so yeah, thanks for your question right, so shall I ask you the next one please this is from uh, Martin Martin Paul Grisman if you were to find yourself as an investigator in Arkham Horror what would be your class and theme by theme I mean what would your abilities and signature cards focus on Chaos bag manipulation, card draw, fail forward, damage mitigation, a particular focus on items or other traits, maybe something unusual like having poor base agility but gaining bonus agility based on the shroud of your location. 
Wow, thank you. Good question, Martin. Wow, a lot to get one's teeth into here. I like that final something unusual like having poor base agility but gaining bonus agility based on the shroud of your location. Is that Martin's own desire for his investigator, maybe? That <laughs> um, <laughs> he's just sneaking that in there. What would be my class and theme? I mean, there's the sort of like the slightly boring realistic answer or there's the fantastical answer. Like realistically, I think most human beings would be survivors, wouldn't we? <laughs> no, we're not uh, well, yeah, police yeah. officers or, yeah. yeah, or I think I think given the nature of this sort of exploratory podcast, I'm probably leaning towards Seeker. Yes, me too, I think. And I work as an editor and writer, so, and I'm training as a therapist, so maybe there's the Guardian-ish bit in there as well about uh, I suppose I'm thinking of Carolyn that's that's where I'm probably at Guardian Seeker ish maybe Seeker Survivor Min, Min T Fan style uh, how about you? Yeah, probably Seeker as well I would imagine I'm an engineer by trade which probably mm-hmm. kind of covers a research aspect whether that I don't know whether you'd have like some kind of inventiveness aspect which is about some interaction between cards and items. Maybe you could take all the science cards, which is like first aid and <laughs> uh, dream enhancing serum and strange solution. Yeah, maybe yeah. Science. That's, that's <laughs> like a scientist. That's Kate Winthrop. Yeah, yeah. Is it? Is there like a? There's not like a mechanism. <laughs> uh, it's not like a mechanism trait. No, sadly not. Yeah, I don't know. So something, something like that. I think maybe, maybe. Um, cards in hand giving you a discount on items or something like that or items not counting towards your hand size or something i don't know oh that could be interesting yeah yeah that's pretty good i don't i have no idea what my abilities would be something about positivity maybe maybe when people pass a test well uh and make them pass even better or something like that or we get to draw cards i'm i'm pretty into the teamwork side of the game as well when i play multiplayer maybe because i don't play it all the time so Stuff that interacts with the team as a whole would be fun for me. Maybe something, maybe because I'm positive, when someone in the team draws the autofail, maybe there'd be a bonus to the team for that. Heal a horror when someone draws the autofail. Flavor text, it's not that bad. (laughs) You know, (laughs) something like that. Or maybe a crueler one, how does that make you feel? Yeah, that's the classic therapist line, isn't it? (laughs) So yeah, that would be interesting. My stats, I'd probably... I'm probably a Preston level stat. Ones <laughs> yeah. across the board. <laughs> ones or zeros. Yeah. Sadly, that's me. Cool. That's a, a really intriguing question because obviously one of the things I enjoy about the game is putting myself in the shoes of other people. And there's not an investigator that I think of as like, oh, Daisy's just like me. But maybe I should do that more. <laughs> yeah. Arkham Superfan, the undisputed heavyweight champion. Of the game, Nathan has written in with some questions as well. I love, he's a long-time listener and long-time caller here with some questions for your mailbag bonanza. Thanks, Nathan. (laughs) For people getting into the game, what would you say is good advice for both the sheer amount of content out there and the frustrating lack of reliable available packs? What should people do to get into the game past the core box? How can they not feel ostracised when all the packs needed for campaign play are missing in action? This is a this is a really good question. Um, I'm mm. sort of one we're entirely unequipped to answer. Um, mm. We've both been lucky enough to be in the game since the year dot, so we've we've been picking everything up as as we go along. And it's 
you know, we, we can both sit back and look at the, the shiny collections on our shelves of everything um, built yeah. over, over four years. Uh, and it must absolutely be frustrating. People, you know, there'll be one pack missing out of a campaign, which means that someone can't get the complete campaign. Mm. Mm. Maybe this is a, this is a, maybe we're right in that the, the, the popularity of the game has grown a lot in the past year or so. Yeah. And it's made these packs a lot harder to find. Yes. And if you're relying on like a bricks and mortar store, it's a lot of stock for them to keep on hand, right? Mm-hmm. They might only have a couple of copies of each scenario, if that. And then if someone else is collecting it, they're going to be scooping up these packs at the same rate you are. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah this this is absolutely a problem. Mm-hmm. FFG isn't isn't like a... It's not on the same scale as like a Wizards of the Coast or a Hasbro or something like that, where they can... They have the kind of really solid distribution lines, mm. uh, and of course, this year seen seen disruptions to supply lines as well, uh, making it hard to get the product out there. But what's the answer? How, how do people get around it? Yeah, I mean, I just want to t- touch on as well, just to add to that. There's two other things that really, I think, two other things that make this more complicated. One is that FFG have a history of underprinting, so that demand stays high. Uh, I don't think it's a, a cynical thing. It's just how they've often operated, that they've played it safe. But now that FFG are owned by Asmodee, I think we are seeing more broadly pressure on them to save money, to be cautious, to make themselves as profitable as possible. And part of that means not overcommitting to any print run and finding you have loads of stock sitting in an FFG warehouse in, where is it, Roseville, Minnesota. So there's a real pressure, I think, higher up the chain, you know, from the producers to not get it wrong and overcommit. And I don't know how quickly they respond to a growth in demand. And that compounds the problem, makes it really tricky. If you want to hear much more eloquent discussion about that, I can really recommend Team Covenant's podcast. They really explore the industry and particularly questions about production, not always, but often. And going back through their podcast, you can see them exploring some of those questions. And obviously, they sell the Arkham packs on subscription. And one of the challenges for them is getting enough stock to fulfill their subscription numbers. They're a really interesting podcast. Their How to Ruin a Game series, one of the things they explored was you get a load of hype around the game and then don't have the product to support it. And how alienating that is for a community that people get excited and then drift away and say, well, I can't find it. You said, Peter, that we don't have any experience of this. What I would say is that when I got into Lord of the Rings, there were four cycles out at the point I got into it. Mm-hmm. And I had this exact problem that I thought I would maybe buy one cycle and I could find the deluxe and four of the six packs <laughs> and not the other two. Yeah. And then what I found myself doing was my eye was then wondering, well, do I invest in a different cycle instead? But I'd already bought the deluxe. And I was really torn and I'm fairly cautious. So I basically waited it out and spent time on the internet looking for packs online. And I finally bought one from Italy that I had to check that it was actually in English, but it was, and that was the final pack. And so I paid about double the price for the final pack. Yeah, that's it's frustrating that though, isn't it? Yeah, I didn't invest further in that game. That, yeah. that process of doing that was a very big turnoff for me. So it is super frustrating. I think it's good for us to remember that we have listeners who don't own everything in the way that we do. Yeah. And that there's a whole new 
portion of the community that are getting into it and are wrestling with that. And from what I've seen online, it seems like people are positive and supportive about that and at least acknowledge that it's tricky and encourage people to keep looking and things like that. I've certainly posted when I've seen local shops that have stock of some of the rarer packs. I'll tell you, I'll tell you one thing. Well, a, a couple of things I, I could say you could do. There's always the option of, of keeping your eyes open for someone selling their collection. Yeah. And in a way, it's better in that case if you've picked up nothing else. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing wrong. If, if you're getting into the game, I would always say the current cycle is probably going to have the strongest stock. Yeah. And and it's easy to see new packs coming out. So going forwards, you're always going to have those those packs on your shelf. Mm-hmm. So so starting with the current cycle, I would say for anyone's probably a good idea because that's the ones you'll find easiest to pick up. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, and this this is a difficult bit of advice to give at the moment, or it's difficult to follow at the moment, is try and get involved with the local community mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. The, the the local community is likely to have people who've got everything. Yeah, people who've been playing for a long time. And if you can get involved with them, you know, because you can build the deck with the core set. Mm-hmm. And if you picked up a deluxe and some of the packs, you know, you've you've already got some variation in what you can put together. The starter mm-hmm. decks have come out recently as well, although they're, <laughs> they're increasingly rare in stock as well. Yes. But, but if you can get a starter deck, you know, and then someone else has got all of the scenarios, Arkham players are really friendly and they'll be happy to run through a campaign with you you know, just to just to take you through it. Mm. I'd actually add to that that getting involved in the community is also getting involved in a network of people who can tell you where to buy packs. Yeah. You know, when we've seen this among patrons, when there's been some disruption in Innsmouth packs, people have been saying, where do you order yours from? And you see all of these different names of either online retailers or local shops that have stock being bandied around. More names than I would have known about just from Googling. Yeah. And I think Plugging into that can be really useful of where do you buy your packs? How often, do, how much stock do they normally have? Okay, look, I've gone and looked at their website. They actually have a pack of each left. That kind of thing can be really helpful. And obviously, if, if you want to play by yourself, if you if you if that's why you're in the game as a solo player, that's, that's like pointless advice. And obviously, if you're listening yeah. when this goes out, it's very hard advice to follow because by law, we can't sit around a table and play games together. Yeah, it's a tricky, tricky time for that, I think. The other thing is, you know, there are side scenarios out there mm-hmm. in various levels of stock. So keeping an eye out for those, because being able to inject into your core set campaign a couple of side scenarios, it suddenly becomes a five scenario campaign. It, it changes things up. That's useful as well, I think. So, yeah, hopefully that's that's some mm-hmm. tips. Uh, there's no easy answers to this. And no. No, I can. We can definitely appreciate how frustrating it would be for people mm. who really want to get in, but there's this this artificial barrier um, for them. Yeah. All I can say is, you know, we've had four years of fun playing this game and counting, so it's it's worth it. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say that you could get a lot of fun out of it if if you're willing to keep keep the time and the investment and take the time. I mean, the other thing I'd say is, obviously, all players are different, but if you can pick a cycle and work on collecting that, you're more likely to stay keen to get more than if you try and buy everything in one fell swoop and you overwhelm yourself with player cards. I certainly did that a little bit in Netrunner. I was trying to catch up and I bought a lot and then I felt like I had this large collection of cards I wasn't playing enough with because I wasn't discovering each new pack as it came out. I was sort of backfilling my collection and it made me quite uncomfortable about am I actually getting 
value out of buying all of these cards or am I just sort of rushing to have this thing? Everyone's different, obviously. It might be that you really love having a binder full of cards that rarely come out. <laughs> That's okay too. But yeah, just it, there might be a virtue in making it a, a journey of discovery rather than a race to the finish, maybe, hopefully. Any projections for the longevity of the game? This is another question from Nathan. There are only so many settings we haven't yet seen and X number of investigators that haven't been used yet. Oh, he says there are only so many settings that we haven't seen yet. I think there's more than enough places they could take it that it would mm-hmm. be going for another 10 years. I think they'll they'll run out of steam selling the game before they'd run out of settings they could use. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I mean, this is not even counting going back and revisiting things like the Dreamlands. Which yep. you know, there's infinite uh, infinite possibilities there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, there's there's we have as we said, there's, they haven't gone to the uh, the Antarctic yet. Mm-hmm. There's all every single one of those little gate locations on Eldritch Horror you could set a cycle in. Yeah, yeah. We've also we've only been to Paris and Egypt outside of the states and Mexico. Mm-hmm. So we're fairly, well, I say Paris, France, we're fairly limited with where we've actually been around the globe as well, you know, so there's there's loads of scope for that as well, for a campaign of crossing the, the Atlantic or the Pacific and exploring whole new places and things like that. Yeah, I think the the template here is Lord of the Rings again, and that game has been going on longer than a decade, I think 12 years now maybe, mm. and is now wrapping up. And like you say, it's wrapping up in part because player numbers have dwindled. And I think also in part because it was a system that really has now groaned under the weight of all the cards it has, which I haven't seen yet with Arkham. Some of the positive points, you know, the taboo list, I think, broadly speaking, is a positive point for the longevity of the game because it encourages disgruntled experienced players to shake up their meta, which I think is good for keeping interest up. Um, we've also seen that they're willing to create new investigators to the Arkham Files, yeah. which is promising. They they also chose a model where they weren't releasing an investigator in every single pack, which has given them time. Maybe we'd reach a point where a deluxe doesn't contain five new investigators. Potentially, yeah. I mean, what we've seen from other uh, living card games is almost like a, a re-release of the core set as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, we've got the return to packs, so we've got a return to the core set, but, you know, a, a refreshed core experience for to bring new players in. It's something they could do to keep extending the game. I, I'm not seeing any signs yet that shows that they're, they're wanting to even start winding it down. Like the releases mm. are still coming thick and fast. Mm. Um, so it's obviously still selling, selling very well. I mean, that's the problem we just talked about. Yeah. So, yeah. It, it's it's very hard to put a number on it. I, I would say the co-op LCGs would probably tend to have a longer life than the the competitive ones. Yeah, because they can they can keep players, they can bring new players in later on in the life. How long that is, I don't know. I mean, unlike some other games, like say Game of Thrones or, or Star Wars or, or Netrunner, the IP for the game is in house. Mm-hmm. So the Arkham Files is in house. So you know that they, they don't have. That added restriction of keeping a, a, a license holder happy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't know. Sky's the limit, really. Yeah, I think the only only well, the the thought that gives me the most pause for concern is some of the rumblings we've seen about Asmodee's ownership of FFG and what's happening there. 
And all of that is speculation. Oh, not all of it, but much of it is speculation about what the impact will be. But that's the thing that adds an element of uncertainty for all of this. We've seen them move all of their Star Wars miniatures games out of the domain of FFG. We've seen them lose 25% of the staff or be made to lose 25% of their staff, rather. So that all is not 100% well at home in FFG, at home base. We've even we've not even seen that that doesn't seem to have impacted Arkham. Yeah, we've not even seen a change in in lead developer, right? No, no. So MJ is still at the helm of the game. Yeah, and adding Jeremy to me seemed like an investment rather yeah. than it wasn't MJ. We've had enough of you. Move on now. It's Jeremy's turn. Or even you know we'll just leave MJ until he runs out of ideas and then the game is over. It was. MJ, you're doing a great job. Now we're adding even more weight to this department because the support is deserved. And to an extent, it, it allows MJ to focus on the the narrative. I think that the, the split was MJ looks more at the narrative design and Jeremy looks more at the player cards. Yeah. Is that, is that, I, I don't know whether that's a fair, fair representation of what's happening because I know they both get involved in both sides of it. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. having someone extra to look at another aspect of the game, I think, is so positive, really. Yeah, and think about the inspiration that MJ might be drawing from having Jeremy do some work on encounter cards. And it's just another voice, another brain sharing ideas, things that you can... I think that was already happening behind the scenes anyway. We've heard of other designers help with scenarios, but yeah. Another low rumbling voice. (laughs) Exactly. Basso profundo. Uh, What cycle thematically would you two love to see soon? Well, we've mentioned... The Mountains of Madness a couple of times. Well, I, mm-hmm. I at least have over the past couple yeah. of episodes. I'd really like to see... That's something I'm kind of interested in. Um, but you mentioned, when you said that, you mentioned The Thing, which... Mm-hmm. Uh, or Who Goes There, which is the book it's based on. Both heavily influenced by... Well, uh, oh man, I think there's a... They're not directly influenced, I don't think, by the story. Um, the Thing, John Carpenter has taken influence from Lovecraftian fiction he's written there was a movie he's made which is essentially about someone influenced by by H.P. Lovecraft mm-hmm. called Mouth of Madness <laughs> yeah but that, that idea of like a tight group and, and paranoia in a, in a hostile environment mm-hmm. would seem to me to fit quite well with Mountains of Madness and it's a feeling I'd really like to get um, whether there's works in something like a traitor mechanic over the course of the scenario uh, of the campaign, I don't know whether that's possible, but I think that could be really, really cool. Something about paranoia and and tension mm. between the players, not being mm. able to trust your your fellow players, I think would be really, really cool. I don't know how they would work that, and um, but it would be really exciting to see. Mm. Mm-hmm. I am really intrigued by what happens with the agents of Shabnagurath set from the core set, which is our sort of fourth great old one as promised by those agent sets from the core set. And I think a Shub campaign could be really fascinating. I think it could draw on elements of things we've seen before. So it might draw on, you know, um, that feeling of maybe like local monstrosities, as it were, in Dunwich. And it might draw on, say, Explore from Forgotten Age. But maybe doing a more Arkham-based campaign, but where Arkham is becoming overgrown and where the fertile growth of the power of Shub is happening could be really cool, I think. I think that idea of sort of maybe 
going into the undergrowth, going into the backwards and finding cults and things like that is, I, I find that a quite intriguing setting. And it, it could maybe reprise Swarm as well. You'd maybe have to be fighting your way through hordes of little griblies in the woods. <laughs> you little really griblies. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Shub, is a, Shub in Call of Cthulhu, the card game, or Call of Cthulhu LCG as it was, was quite a fun faction because it was all about getting bodies on the board. It was sort of swarmy, um, as I remember it anyway. I'll be sure someone can write it and tell me I'm wrong. So maybe that more, a little bit like you said with Antarctic, a bit more pulpy, a bit more about run and gun and fight your way through things and about, yeah, swarms of enemies. That could be a fun setting. And maybe that wouldn't be next after after Innsmouth because we've had something like that with Innsmouth. But I think they're fun settings to explore. Finally, how often do you get do you two get to play the game nowadays? Does he mean together or separately or both? Well, both. Um, we've played, as you mentioned, in early on. Yes, early mm-hmm. on. Not last week. You mentioned <laughs> we have played more together this year, mm-hmm. which has been yeah. nice. Yeah. Yeah, I must admit, I I think I've played a lot less over the past year because um, mm. I've always preferred playing multiplayer with friends sat at a dining table. Yeah, and that's much harder to manage. And usually, used to usually get a good session in once a week. But nowadays, it's I'm playing the new packs as they come out, and we're playing on the odd weekend, and I'm doing a little mm-hmm. bit of solo. But it's 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 difficult. I think it's more difficult to get it really, um, mm. really much more frequent than that for me. And I play probably a couple of times a week solo, or maybe you know a couple of scenarios in one flurry, and then a bit of a pause. And I normally have Arkham in view when I'm recording, but not always. But similar thing where the online games I've been, uh, the online, the, the multiplayer games I've been playing have moved online and my interest in them has therefore dropped because I just find playing it online is nowhere near the same experience as face-to-face, whether that's tech issues talking over the phone or just the experience of how the cards work. You know, there's a, there's great ways of playing this game remotely, but it's still, to me, it's a different experience to playing face-to-face. And the thing I fell in love with was the face-to-face experience. Yeah. Yeah, I think, weirdly, the other thing to mention about that is, of course, you started Think On Your Feet, joined in with Think On Your Feet in the last year. Yeah. And that's also been, I think, really interesting that we've had a sort of shared experience there, where obviously we're not playing together online, but... Uh, you're more invested in Think on Your Feet because you're involved in it and the back and forth of that and the nice reception we've got of those interlude episodes where we're chewing on the decks and maybe bringing some of the conversations that we might have behind the scenes onto the cast and it seems to have been fairly well received, which is nice. Cool. Yeah, Thanks, I, I, Nathan. I, yeah I couldn't agree more. And thank, thank you for the questions, Nathan. Nathan is the yeah, really Ar- good. Arkham's number one fan, as, as I hinted at earlier. What a guy. Okay, and we've got a question from Dai. If you would choose one, uh, sorry, if you could choose one piece of card art from Arkham to have as a poster on your wall, what would it be? How about for a playmat? That is a good one. Good question. So, having played Netrunner, I know how quickly and desirable the the source book would be. Because I I pre-ordered the Worlds of Android book, which is a collector's item pretty much nowadays. Yeah. And that came with a playmat, which I think I've still got somewhere. So I knew the, the investigators of Arkham book would be the same. So I bought that with the, the playmat as well. So I've got that, the, um, 
Astaroth. Astaroth? Azatoth. Sorry, Astaroth is a character yeah. in Soul Calibur. Um, <laughs> I've got the Azatoth uh, playmat. There's that fantastic bit of art with like the skull exploding. Yeah, yeah. It's really, really cool. But aside from that, as a poster, you know what I really like? Mm. I like the, the 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 box cover art from the deluxe sets. Yeah, I can't remember the artist off the top of my head. Do you? Can you remember who it is? No, 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 no. It's different pieces of art each time, isn't it? We or is it always the same artist? It's always the same artist. Let me have a look. Share the internet. Cover art. Thomas Jedrzejczyk. Jedrzejczyk. Oh, yeah. I'm probably mangling that pronunciation. Apologies, Thomas. But their art, they, mm. I think they've done the Innsmouth Conspiracy, I think Dunwich, I think maybe Forgotten Age isn't isn't them. Okay. But it's like those cityscape bits of art. Mm. They're beautiful. Mm-hmm. I love them. That, that's what I want to have on my wall. That reminds me of some of the amazing Carcosa art, the kind of golden carcosa and things like that that would be amazing absolutely uh or you know there's you can see the upside down city as well through a portal there's various pieces of that yeah i i find it it's a weird sort of challenging question in a way because there's so many different things that i enjoy about the game and art is one of them but you know there are some cards that i love the art on them but i don't know if i would necessarily want them on my wall essence of the dream the skill card that comes with dream diary Oh yeah, is amazing. So that I think could be really cool. Maybe a little bit busy as a playmat, but would be really good. And the other art, when you were speaking about deluxes, it made me think the Dream Eaters cover with the huge Atlatch Natcha and two tiny investigators in front of it. I really like that to sort of illustrate scale and illustrate what you're up against. That would be cool. I don't know if I'd want a picture of a terrifying spider on my wall. But, um, <laughs> yeah, that's sort of impressive as well. Here's another random one. What's that mm. set called? Is it Shattered Memories? Yeah, yeah. There's the the ones with the guy's head shattering. Yeah. Um, <laughs> is it, is it, are they called Memory of Various Things? Memory of Oblivion. Memory of Oblivion, yeah. that's it. Mm. That's a great bit of art. I love that. Well, funny you mentioned that because the other thing I thought of was some of the early art really enamoured me to the game. And I'm thinking of shriveling and scrying. The scrying art of seeing the ghoul priest in a mug of tea, I think is one of the most evocative images for telling, basically giving a narrative explanation to a mechanical thing. You know, scrying is you spend an action and look at three cards. So it could sort of be anything. But actually that that piece of art really captures something of the storytelling potential of the game. That could be a really good playmat, actually. I don't think I'd get bored of looking at the ghoul priest's mask in on a playmat in, in a cup of tea. Yeah. A cool question. I guess one of the things that might be interesting to dive into at some point is I know when I played Netrunner, you had a few artists who almost defined the style of the game. Yeah. So there was, uh, I think Liga was one of them. Um, Liga Ad- yeah. That's right. And, and uh, is Adam S. Doyle as well? Yeah. Who's also done art in, in Arkham. Absolutely. Yeah. It'd be interesting to look through the, the Arkham uh, artists and card arts and just try mm. and pick out who you know who's that similar kind of define the feel of the game. Um, I always think uh, is it Magali Vienev? Yes, who does all of the investigator art. Mm-hmm. I think she's she's had a tremendous impact on how the game feels and the look of the game. 
just from doing those investigator portraits. Yeah, and you think about the tarot art on the agendas through Circle Undone, which was all Lenka Semechkova. That feel in Circle Undone with those kind of golden tarot cards and how they use them to promote the campaign and things like that, that was amazing as a kind of design element that draws together the feeling of the eight eight scenarios really well, I think. I really like that. I, I think you're completely right that when you get one artist getting a run of a few cards, it can really give you a strong sense of this is the this is the style of I don't know these this set of spells or. So I'm just I'm bra- browsing through card art at the moment, yeah. just seeing what what what's jumping out to me is is cool bits of art. Yes. Okay. Well, um, do you want to hit me with the last question? The last question is from Jared from Doovies. Hi, Doovies. Uh, our biggest fan in Australia, maybe. <laughs> maybe not. Maybe there's a bigger fan. You're patrolling the waters off Innsmouth. Name your vessels. Oh, man, this is a hard This one. isn't even a question, so you're you're not legally obliged to answer it. <laughs> you go first. I'm, no. I'm going to keep what thinking. What would your vessels be? I mean, we will soon be unboxing Horror in High Gear, and there's a card in that called Unrelenting. It would be cool to have a vessel called, like, the unrelenting something or other. What's um, Silas is called? Sea change. Is that what his, yes, it his is. Yeah, it's called this sea is the sea. <laughs> it just reminded me of um, Arrested Development. Have you, have you watched that? Yeah, yeah. Because the big fan. Because does he called the boat the the seaward. <laughs> the seaward. The seaward. S e a w a r d. Obviously, they yeah. say it as the c word all the time. <laughs> the c word. Yeah, yeah. Solid <laughs> as a rock. That's the. <laughs> I mean, it's the same with the first analysts and therapists, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And now therapist. Yeah. <laughs> Such a good gag. Oh god. Yeah, yeah it's horrible. What would you name your? What a. I tell you what. I tell you what. Here's here's one. Any of the, any of the desperate cards have. Mm. They're good. Say names. your prayers. Yeah. <laughs> Say your prayers. Run for your life. Also good. Reckless assault. Reckless assault. What a name for a ship. <laughs> or, or the desperate search. Yeah. I that's think they, good. they all work very well. That's yeah. That's that's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. What's the fourth one? Say your prayers. Desperate. Um, that's it. Because it's not a. Oh, run for your life. Yeah. Yeah. Run for your life. Yeah. <laughs> run for your life. <laughs> yes. Yeah. There's two types of ship names, aren't there? Really. Certainly. Um, basing this all off narrow boats, there's either like a woman's name that's sort of like slightly affectionate if somewhat creepy, or there's like a, a little expression like, the, you know, the summer breeze or the midnight danger. Yeah, exactly. Something like that. Threat level midnight. That's the <laughs> the film from The Office, isn't it? Oh, he is it? His, <laughs> yeah, he makes this film with him as a secret agent. It's called Threat Level Midnight. Good name. Yeah, thank you. A silly question that we failed to answer. Well, Peter, um, can you just run us quickly through the schedule for the next four years? (laughs) Episode by episode. (laughs) Yeah, I was so kind to take us through the last 100. We probably earned a bit of a break. Yeah, yeah. Take that once, sometimes monthly break. Exactly, exactly. But we are... But we started in... It was it February the first episode went out in. I think it actually went in January. Really? Yeah, I think so. Man, it that, that's it that's crazy if so because we've managed to stick to about fifty episodes a year, give or take a few weeks. 
yeah, that's that's pretty good. I reckon it's incredible. <laughs> yeah, it's I can't believe it when we look back at how much we've done. So yeah, it's a lot of hours now. It is. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever tried to calculate how much? I mean, it must be sort no, of f- no, five, four, five hundred. I don't know. No, it can't be because a lot of the episodes are less than an hour, aren't they? Yeah, but I suppose there's the time taken to edit it for us both as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sorry for it's you. A lot of it. <laughs> for, yeah. you, for you, not for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and the other remarkable thing looking ahead is that it's rare that we f- don't feel like there's a few things we want to cover. Like we've got a couple of little episode ideas bubbling away at the moment, haven't we? Yeah. In 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 all of the time, we've never been like, well, we should record, but I don't know what to record. Yeah. Yeah. Interestingly, I when I listened to episode 100, I said in that episode, and I'd said it for the first time to you in that episode, was that I didn't know how well podcast for a co-op card game was going to work when we mm. started. Mm. Uh, and the answer is apparently very well. I thought you were going to say, and I'd just like to reiterate that I still don't know if this is any good. Yeah. I don't know how we're going to spin this out. Yeah, I'll let you know. <laughs> I think, but yeah, we're still on that cliched journey of discovery of working out what we want to do and what we want to talk about. Back on episode 100, I, I was saying I feel like we understand a bit more what we're doing. But actually, one of the guiding principles has been to pursue what we enjoy talk about the things that are getting us excited at any moment whether that's first looking or playing thinking your feet together or picking smaller topics that we're excited about so yeah we're continuing to do that well i guess that brings us to the end unless you have anything else to say peter no and here's to another two years i guess for, for up to episode 300 yeah yeah settle in when would you be happy What's what's the episode count you'd be happy at? Five hundred, a thousand. Wow, um, I th- I'm pretty happy at two hundred to be honest with That's you. It. Just dusted off. Yeah, we're done. We're yeah. up to two hundred. Oh, as in <laughs> when would I be happy to stop? Yeah, yeah. When are you going to yeah. be satisfied? When is your thirst for Arkham podcasting going to be satisfied? Never. I don't know. Episode six. Well, we've got to get through all of those investigator specific episodes, oh, and God. there's one in particular who seems to be hanging over us. So. That's right. Yeah. Pete, Pete yeah. Ash, Ashcan Pete. <laughs> exactly. He's a man. <laughs> yeah. He has access to Guardian and Seeker cards. Great. Well, thank you very much for listening to us as we enjoy ourselves for episode 200. I hope you've enjoyed this episode as well. You can write to us and let us know. We're drawn to the flame podcast at gmail.com. We're drawn to the flame on Facebook and Twitter, so come say hello there. You can also be a patron of the cast, drawn to the flame podcast on patreon <laughs> i'm going to give the email address again and you can also buy a mug or a t-shirt or other merchandise to support the cast you go to design by humans and search for drawn to the flame there peter how can people get in touch with you i am united everywhere so that's u-n-i-t-l-e-d i'm on twitter i'm on the reddit occasionally i'm on discord i'm on instagram is the.unitled where i post pictures of cats and painting new painting models uh, so yeah please say hello how about you Frank uh, I'm FB on Twitter that's EPH underscore BEE and FEB on Instagram and then I'm around the place as Zooey Glass and Zozo likewise say hello and thank you very much for listening all the way through to episode 200 it's thank you
he had studied beyond the custom of his kind, seeking such things as the philosopher's stone or the elixir of eternal life, and was reputed wise in the terrible secrets of black magic and alchemy. Steve Ramsey had one son, named Charles, a youth as proficient as himself in the hidden arts, and who had therefore been called Le Sorcier, or the Wizard. I like Le Sorcier, it's cool. Sounds like the man who makes the sauce. The Sorcier, yeah. Uh, there's the pastry chef, the patissier, and the Sorcier who makes the, <laughs> the, sorcier. Makes, makes the sauces. One night, the castle on the hill was thrown into the wildest confusion by the vanishment of young Godfrey, son to Henry the Comte. A searching party, headed by the frantic father, invaded the cottage of the sorcerers, and there came upon old Yuri Mazatov, busy over a huge and violently boiling cauldron. It's a bit more kind of fantasy, isn't it? Yeah, what's that one from? The same, the alchemist. Mm. It's like the ending. Huge and violently boiling cauldron. Beautiful. 